and welcome to For We Are Many. My name is Trisha. And I'm Chelsea. And we are your hosts this evening for another segment on Bell Hook's book, Killing Rage, Ending Racism. Tonight we're going to be reading the essay, Teaching Resistance, the Racial Politics of Mass Media. And that starts on page 108. So if you have the book on you to read along, that's where we'll be at. Um, do you have any announcements to make or anything before we dive into the audio? I don't think so, but I want to message the group real quick and have them send stuff because I don't want this to accidentally open the music while we're right here. Because <laughs> every time I click on so it just starts it immediately and it's really annoying. Um, I'm like, okay, wait, but I don't want to watch it. I just need to see it so I can share it. <laughs> right. Um, hi, James. Welcome. Glad to see you're able to make it today. See someone else is with us too from Twitch. Hello and welcome. All right. I am good to go. All right, wonderful. Well, if you want to go ahead and hit play, I will also hop in there and give this some shares around to other groups. And uh, those of you watching, if you want to give it some shares too, feel free. We appreciate it. And yes, DJ Rob's music is fun. He he recorded all of that intro himself, even the drums. That that's Rob too. I am going. Of essay nine. Page 108. Essay 10. Teaching resistance. The racial politics of mass media. When I began the process of education for critical consciousness to radicalize my thinking and action, I relied on the writings and life practices of Malcolm X, Paolo Freire, Albert Mamie, Franz Fanon, Amical Cabral, Walter Rodney, and a host of other thinkers. The work of these teachers and political mentors led me to think about the absence of a discourse on colonialism in the United States. When thinking about the kind of language commonly evoked to talk about black experience in white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchal North America, I was often struck by the pervasive use of euphemisms words like Jim Crow, Uncle Tom, Miss Anne, and so forth. These colorful terms obscured the underlying structures of domination that kept white supremacy in place. By socializing white and black citizens in the United States to think of racism in personal terms, individuals could think of it as having more to do with inherent prejudicial feelings than with a consciously mapped out strategy of domination that was systematically maintained. Even though African Americans in the United States had no country, whites took over and colonized as a structure of domination that is defined as the conquest and ownership as a people by another, colonialism aptly describes the process by which blacks were and continue to be subordinated by white supremacy. Page 109. In the beginning, black folks were most effectively colonized via a structure of ownership. Once slavery ended, white supremacy could be effectively maintained by the institutionalization of social apartheid and by creating a philosophy of racial inferiority that would be taught to everyone. 
The strategy of colonialism needed no country for the space it sought to own and conquer was the minds of whites and blacks. As long as a harsh, brutal system of racial apartheid was in place, separating blacks from whites by laws, coercive structures of punishment, and economic disenfranchisement, many black people seemed to intuitively understand that our ability to resist racist domination was nurtured by a refusal of the colonizing mindset. Segregation enabled black folks to maintain oppositional worldviews and standpoints to counter the effects of racism and to nurture resistance. The effectiveness of those survival strategies was made evident by both civil rights movements and the militant resistance that followed in their wake. This resistance to colonialism was so fierce, a new strategy was required to maintain and perpetuate white supremacy. Racial integration was that strategy. It was a setting for the emergence of neo-colonial white supremacy. Placed in positions of authority in educational structures and on the job, white people could oversee and eradicate organized resistance. The new neo-colonial environment gave white folks even greater access and control over the African-American mind. Integrated educational structures were the locations where whites could best colonize the minds and imaginations of black folks. Page 110. Television and mass media were the other great neo-colonial weapons. Contemporary African-Americans often ponder how it is possible for the spirit of resistance to be so diminished today, even though the structures of our lives continue to be shaped and informed by the dictates of white supremacy. The spirit of resistance that remained strong from slavery to the militant 60s was displaced when whites made it seem as though they were truly ready to grant black folks social equality, that there were indeed enough resources to go around, that the imperialist wealth of this country could be equitably shared. Those assumptions were easy to believe given the success of 60s black militant struggle. By the time the bubble burst, collectively, black folks had let our guard down and a more insidious colonization of our minds began to take place. While the Eurocentric biases taught to blacks in the educational system were meant to socialize us to believe in our inherent inferiority, it was ultimately the longing to have access to material rewards granted whites, the luxury and comfort represented in advertising and television, that was the greatest seduction aping whites, assimilating their values, that is, white supremacist attitudes and assumptions, was clearly the way to achieve material success. And white supremacist values were projected into our living rooms, into the most intimate spaces of our lives by mass media. Gone was any separate space apart from whites where organized militant resistance could emerge. Even though most black communities were and remain segregated, mass media bring white supremacy into our lives, constantly reminding us of our marginalized status. With the television on, whites were and are always with us, their voices, values, and beliefs echoing in our brains. It is this constant presence of the colonizing mindset passively consumed that undermines our capacity to resist white supremacy by cultivating oppositional worldviews. Page 111. Even though most African Americans do not identify with the experiences of whites in real life or have intimate relationships with them, these boundaries are crossed when we sit facing the television. 
when television was first invented and many black folks could not afford TVs or did not have the luxury of time to consume representations of whiteness all day long, a barrier still existed between the value system of the dominant white culture and the values of most black folks. That barrier was torn down when televisions entered every living room. Movies function in a similar way. Not surprising, when black Americans were denied easy access to white movies, black cinema thrived. Once the images of whiteness were available to everyone, there was no black movie-going audience starving for black images. The hunger to see black folks on the screen had been replaced by the desire to be close to the Hollywood image to whiteness. No studies have been done that I know of which look at the role mass media have played since 1960 in perpetuating and maintaining the values of white supremacy. Constantly and passively consuming white supremacist values, both in educational systems and via prolonged engagement with mass media, contemporary black folks and everyone else in this society are vulnerable to a process of overt colonization that goes easily undetected. Acts of blatant racism are rarely represented in mass media images. Most television shows suggest via the liberal dialogues that occur between white characters or racially integrated casts that racism no longer serves as a barrier. Even though there are very few black judges in the United States, television courtroom dramas cast black characters in these roles in ways so disproportionate to the reality that it is almost ludicrous. Yet the message sent to the American public and folks all over the world watching American TV is that our legal system has triumphed over racial discrimination, that not only is there social equality, that that, but that black folks are often the ones in power. Page 112. I know of no studies that have examined the role television has played in teaching white viewers that racism no longer exists. Many white folks who never have intimate contact with black folks now feel that they know what we are like because television has brought us into their homes. Whites may well believe that our presence on the screen and in their intimate living spaces means that the racial apartheid that keeps neighborhoods and schools segregated is the false reflection and that what we see on television represents the real. Yeah. Um, I think I grew up with this sort of mindset a little bit. Um, I don't think that I ever was taught in my household or in my private school education that equality had been achieved, but I also wasn't taught that it, I wasn't taught that it had, and I wasn't taught that it hadn't. It was more like it was a non-issue. And with a mom that would watch TV all of the time, whether it was good television or bad television, um, she would say things sometimes that were that were racist, but in a subtle manner, usually. Um, my stepdad was usually more um, overt in the things that he was saying that was racist. But um, I can I can understand where she's coming from in the first of that very long paragraph that paragraph was like a page and a half um <laughs> so i'm just like okay i keep waiting and i keep being afraid i'm gonna forget something um but with the television on whites were and always and are always with us their voices values and beliefs echoing in our brains it is this constant presence of colonizing mindset passively consumed that undermines our capacity to resist white supremacy by cultivating oppositional views I mean, she goes really well into showing how things can be political without being direct and how 
you can be presented with another mindset or another um, artistic portrayal of something. And you can even acknowledge that it is not realistic, but it has still been implanted in our brains. Like, so it's still something that influences you, even if you're not paying attention to it. Right. And that that's the thing, you know, like she's blatantly pointing out there, if it hasn't just influence you know the white portions of the population with this false impression it has also influenced the black population too and a lot of people are completely unaware to how certain racist ideals are being ingrained in them because of that where it i can see like it's produced things like colorism amongst you know black red and brown people you know so that impression is still being given of the closer you are in proximity to whiteness, the better. And that is a false ideal that Hollywood has certainly fucking helped propagate. It's um, I, I remember, I think it was in the late eighties or early nineties that BET started. Um, and that was a surprise. She never mentions BET. I, I, would like, I would like a take on what she thinks about that. I, I don't know. I don't know. But I wonder if she ever has, you know, given her stance on that. And if so, if we could possibly find that. Because <laughs> I'm curious because like for the first time, there was a channel completely dedicated to black television and movies, artwork, the whole nine yards, music, you name it. And it was first that a lot of people were able to actually see a reflection of themselves on that screen. And I remember there being racist ass white people who were so mad about it. Like, what would, what would everybody say if we made a white entertainment television? And it's like, you motherfucker, looks like every other channel because that's what that yeah, is. And you didn't, you didn't take their entire culture away from them and punish them for it in certain aspects either. Um, right. To James's question, but no, I was thinking about BET half the time that I was reading this also. And so maybe at the end, I can take some time to look that up while we're talking about uh, questions and comments and stuff. But yeah. um, to answer James's question, um, I went to Christian Heritage Academy in Dell City, Oklahoma. Um, Which is very bigoted. It was founded. It was founded uh, in response to desegregation. It was against desegregation, which um, is a complicated topic in regards to what she's saying here, because she's saying that desegregation was a detriment to the black community because they were now being infiltrated with this idea that they were going to be equal when they were not, and really it was just a way to to quell um, the civil unrest that was building within the black community. Um, I don't have a problem with desegregation. So it's like, it's a very complex issue to like take it from what she's saying and then take it to what I'm saying. So yeah, my, my high school sucks um, and it is very racist. They pretend that they're not now, they've kind of streamlined everything. Um, but everything that they are founded from and everything that they teach is white supremacy. And my mother still believes all of it fucking sad to see 
people still clinging to those ideals, but it's also, it's beautiful to see people like you who they tried to ingrain with that bullshit. And it literally goes back to the Bible verse of train children up in the way they should go. And will when they are adults, they will not part from it. And it's like the fuck they won't. <laughs> like when you start thinking for yourself and start really actually getting to know the world around you, you have no choice but to turn your back on that shit if you have any kind of ethics and be able to see, oh wait, that was fucked. Yeah. You know? It started with personal issues. Um, I've always, when I was growing up, I was always trying to do the right thing, say the right thing. I was never in trouble. Um, but then when I graduated, I just saw all of this hypocrisy within the way that they're living. They're teaching me purity. My mom's been married three times. My dad's been married four times. He's had seven kids with four different women. Um, so, and he believes in Calvinism and polygamy, which don't go together. Um, and so once I moved out, I was getting criticized for living with my then fiance. Um, and having sex before marriage and i'm just like who the fuck are all of you what where do you think that you can tell me anything about how to live my life i didn't think that i was necessarily smart i kind of felt insecure and stupid about it but it was just me making my own decision and then just seeing how a whole bunch of people are preaching to me about things that they have no place talking about um and so then from there everything else eventually followed but um to me it was just I don't like being corrected by people that have no place correcting me. So same. That was one of those moments where, you know, I also broke away from the family's religious views and shit too, you know, um, cause while racism wasn't an issue there, sexism definitely was misogyny definitely was. And that was something that I could see happening even as a child and was not okay with like what the fuck um and it's it's one of those things that really does break that fucking mold that they tried to push you into yeah. you know um, i was already weird though even though i never did anything wrong like i was hanging out with the gays and lesbians i was hanging out with a filipino catholic that was in an all-baptist school um so i was already hanging out with the weird people i just had to move out to decolonize the politics of everything because that was basically what I had to focus on the most. Yeah. And it's not always very um, noticeable that what you believe is racist. I mean, I had been called racist at that time in my life and it was just like, I didn't say anything directly about race. Um, and so I just thought that it was ridiculous. But now looking back, it's like, it, it makes sense. I did believe racist things. I was nice. I wasn't like my parents. I wasn't saying the things that they would say, whether they be subtle or direct, but I still believed everything that they were teaching me. So. And then you had to unlearn all of that bullshit. Takes a long fucking time. Yeah. <laughs> Going, oh, fuck. <laughs> you know, like, wait a minute. This kind By the time you've fallen sense. out enough, you're just like, God, this is, I mean, my entire life is... I, you feel like your entire life's been wasted. Yeah. But it wasn't your entire life. It it was your formative years. Right now, it's still most of it. So, <laughs> right. Or at least it's wow. still affecting me also, even when I'm not a part of it. It's still like, it's infuriating. Yeah. Same. Um, I'll go ahead and start again. Okay. 
Currently, black folks are often depicted on television in situations where they charge racist victimization, and then the viewer is bombarded with evidence that shows this to be a trumped-up charge that whites are indeed far more caring and able to be social equals than misguided blacks realize. The message that television sends then is that the problem of racism lies with black people, that it, it exists in our minds and imaginations. On a recent episode of Law and Order, a white lawyer directs anger at a black woman and tells her, if you want to see the cause of racism, look in the mirror. Television does not hold white people responsible for white supremacy. It socializes them to believe that subjugation and subordination of black people by any means necessary is essential for the maintenance of law and order. Such thinking informed the vision of white folks who looked at the tape showing the brutal beating of Rodney King by a group of white men and saw a scenario where he was threatening white lives and they were merely keeping the peace. Movies also offer us the vision of a world where white folks are liberal, eager to be social equals with blacks. The message of films like Grand Canyon, Lethal Weapon, The Bodyguard, and a host of other Hollywood films is that whites and blacks live together in harmony. Page, one, page 114. Hollywood awarded its first Oscar Hold to a No, I, no. <laughs> Like that skipped all of 113. <laughs> Ow. Okay, Sarah, you got to move. Oh, like, uh, maybe it's that another page. That didn't even switch. Reading. That didn't even switch narrators this time. Right. No, she just felt like skipping this whole page. So, uh, fuck it. I'm going to rewind it and then stop it at the harmony part, and then I'll read what comes after that. Wow. Okay. I figured I would take a turn because usually like Grand Canyon, Lethal Weapon, The Bodyguard, and a host of other Hollywood films is that whites and blacks live together in harmony. Contemporary Hollywood films that show strife between races situate the tension around criminal behavior where black characters may exist as good or bad guys in the traditional racist cowboy scenario, but where most whites, particularly heroic ones, are presented as capable of transcending the limitations of race. For the most part, television and movies depict a world where blacks and whites coexist in harmony, although the subtext is clear. This harmony is maintained because no one really moves from the location white supremacy allocates to them on the race-sex hierarchy. Denzel Washington and Julia Roberts may play opposite one another in the Pelican Brief, but there will, be not, but there will not be a romance. True love in television and movies is almost always an occurrence between those who share the same race. When love happens across boundaries, as in the bodyguard, zebrahead, or a Bronx tale, it is doomed for no apparent reason and or has tragic consequences. White and black people learning lessons from mass media about racial bonding are taught that curiosity about those who are racially different can be expressed as long as boundaries are not actually crossed and no genuine intimacy emerges. Many television viewers of all races and ethnicities were enchanted by a series called All Fly Away, which highlighted a liberal white family's struggle in the South and the perspective of the black woman who works as a servant in their home. Even though the series is often centered on the maid, her status has never changed or challenged. Indeed, she is one of the stars of the show. It does not disturb most viewers that at this moment in history, black women continue to be represented in movies and on television as the servants of whites. The fact that a black woman can be cast in a dramatically compelling leading role as a servant does not intervene on racist sexist stereotypes. It reinscribes them. 
I don't know where she starts on. She started at Holly, at the first sentence of 114 of Hollywood awarded its first Oscar. Okay. Um, you want to talk about why they skipped that? Um, sure. Maybe because it once again is an uncomfortable moment for a, a white woman who's reading this to talk about. Well, in a way, I think that we have somewhat come a longer way with this um, as far as um, media is concerned now, like with Netflix and things like that, there's entire, but that still, I think, reinscribes what she's saying at the same time that it gives, it gives the illusion that the black community has achieved equality, even though we're seeing more black centered um, television shows and things like that. And that's awesome it's also at the same time not necessarily reflecting what is going on in reality. So while we're seeing this empowerment on the screen, it's not necessarily happening in real life. Um, I had not seen most of the movies that she mentioned other than The Bodyguard. Um, but it's an accurate look it that is. I had never considered before. Right. Like, I remember watching The Pelican Brief and The Bodyguard um, and yeah, her analysis on those two is fucking accurate. And it it's fucked that, you know, that was still something that I would felt the need to frame of, you know, basically what she was saying of, oh, this always ends in detriment if there's an actual genuine intimate connection between a white person and a black person. It's like, that's not fucking reflective of reality. Yeah. at all you know that's just that racial hierarchy bullshit that they're wanting to continue to frame there um it's ridiculous and it's one of those things where once again people need to understand that hollywood is not real fucking life hollywood wants to cause tensions that increase the drama factor of their shows that emotionally engage you in their shit and they're going to feed you underlying messages that are bullshit. Yeah. I always find the radical parts of like media and stuff. I, I, I'm not like, I don't usually go, man, that's brainwashing bullshit. But I get, I mean, now we can pick and choose what we watch instead of just being like, this is TV. This is what's on right now. Um, right. You have 12 this channels. Was also making me think, <laughs> this was also making me think of um, that this was in the time period. I think that Malcolm X was made in 1993. Is that right? Sounds about right. I'd have to look it up, but yeah. Yeah, but it's it's around that time. It was before this book was published, I'm pretty sure. Um, but when I was watching it, I, I only recently watched it. I can't remember. It's been a few months at the most. Um, but I was getting so mad about it because I just read the autobiography and I was like, none of this is like, none of this is right. Like, it's not like whenever he has the um, the friend in prison, um, and I'm just like, he spent most of his prison time alone reading books. He didn't need help to get his philosophy of life down. Like he did that by himself. Um, right. and so it's like, and I was talking to a friend of mine that had recommended that I watch the movie after I read that autobiography. And I kind of wish that I had watched the movie first, um, because I wouldn't have been as disappointed. Um, but he said that they had to water a lot of stuff down because like that was a hard movie to even get made at that time. 
it it was it was and people don't realize now seeing what what is now being produced on tv versus how different it still was in the 90s you know i would Um, love to see another more uh, accurate malcolm x yeah i would love i would love to see yeah because yeah. like now they're making they're making people look exactly like the people that they're portraying, like not to be superficial, but Pam and Tommy, that girl looks exactly, yeah, like, like. <laughs> so I'm just like I want to see a real life Malcolm X impersonator right now, um, <laughs> who actually portrays it accurately and not. <laughs> Fine. Denzel did what he had to do, and he was awesome in that movie. And he did look like him, sort of, but they make him look like exactly like the people that they're being now. And so I really like it. It's it's kind of funny because after making that movie, there was a few times that people who did not realize who he was actually thought Denzel was Malcolm. And it's like, hold a fucking train. Like I've literally seen people even meme. They this, don't look alike. Using, using like skills <laughs> from that movie of Denzel and then slap a Malcolm X quote on it. Like, see what Malcolm said. It's like, can you fucking grab an actual picture of Malcolm and not one of Denzel, please? Yeah. I'm like, I want to see Malcolm. Like, I love Denzel, but you know, if you're going to make a meme or something with Den or with Malcolm X quotes, you shouldn't have and the there's certain that. actors now that are just like, that's Denzel. <laughs> so right. you're just like, or like, that's Jennifer Aniston being Jennifer Aniston. Um, so you're just like, I, I can't. Some of them, you've just seen them so many times that their personality is like, it's too much. Um, I think that was when he was he was not as big, maybe. Um, so I don't think he had that air about him of being like, I'm Denzel. But... <laughs> Um, I'm gonna start. Um, yeah, he's, we'll he's make sure that we'll make sure that this is at the right spot. Okay. Yeah, pretty sure it is. But you never know with this lady. She loves to omit. That was ridiculous too, because you didn't even have to flip the page. It's on the same two pages. Like she was like reading this, and then all of a sudden it was just like, "You're right there. You you didn't even have to flip a page. It's still right there." Yeah, not being read. <laughs> She's like, you know what? No, I'm an old white lady and I'm not reading that. Okay. It's funny. You can tell the parts where she just immediately takes offense. Like, uh. Right. <laughs> like, like, chokes a little bit and then moves on. <laughs> <laughs> or tells you to flip the tape. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> we're keen to your shit now, lady. Um, I'm just going to start saying flip the tape to you whenever I'm just like, I don't like that. <laughs> Oh man. Okay, I'm going. Okay. Go for it. Page 114. Hollywood awarded its first Oscar to a black person in 1939 when Hattie McDaniel won as Best Supporting Actress in Gone with the Wind. She played the maid. Contemporary films like Fried Green Tomatoes and Passion Fish, which offer viewers progressive visions of white females, still image black women in the same way as servants. Even though the black female servant in Passion Fish comes from a middle class background, drug addiction has led her to drop in status. 
and the film suggests that working secluded as the caretaker of a sick white woman redeems the black woman. It was 24 years after McDaniel won her Oscar that the only black man to ever receive this award won Best Actor. Sidney Poitier won for his role in the 1960s film Lilies of the Field. In this film, he is also symbolically a mammy figure, playing an itinerant worker who caretakes a group of white nuns. Mass media consistently depict black folks either as servants or in subordinate roles, a placement which still suggests that we exist to bolster and caretake the needs of whites. Two examples that come to mind are the role of the black female FBI agent in The Silence of the Lambs, whose sole purpose is to bolster the ego of the white female lead played by Jodie Foster. And certainly in all the Lethal Weapon movies, Danny Glover's character is there to be the buddy who, because he is black and therefore subordinate, can never eclipse the white male star. Black folks confront media that include us and subordinate our representation to that of whites, thereby reinscribing white supremacy. Um, that's weird because didn't Danny Glover have a lot to do with the civil rights movement and maybe had met Malcolm X before? I'd have to look it up to be sure. I'm pretty sure. I'll write that down. I'll write that down to look up whenever we're done with this too. Um, I'd also like to take, to take a moment to contrast this with more recent stuff, like, um, the, the coven, um, season of American yeah, Horror Story, uh, where the, the white racist bitch gets made to be the slave of the black witch as oh, punishment. Yeah her racism for her blood and gore fucking treatment of black people that uh it's like uh, no, it's, you the, get to it's, it's the bigger lady the older the bigger older lady not um um yeah and i i can see your face oh, yeah. I, I like her she's a good actress um but i know what, yeah i know what you mean though but but yeah that when i saw that that made me smile like yeah that's that's the type of shit that you know is a little more appropriate like here how about you unlearn your racist fucking bullshit now you get to be the one in subservience well and i also liked how they did that because she was obviously still from that time um, right the older white lady like she just ended up she was like immortal or something um, or she, yes. like, she can't remember. She had she drank some stuff to make her immortal so that she would forever have to suffer. That was, that was part of her punishment, um, for having killed a whole bunch of her slaves, including one okay. who was the lover of the witch that cursed her with that and was like, you know what, now you get to see your whole fucking family die and I'm going to bury you in the ground. So you live forever stuck here just thinking about how badly you fucked up. Yeah. You know? um, the reason um, that I liked that too, though, is because it wasn't punishing someone being like, oh, well, she's just old and she came from slavery and she just doesn't know any better. Or it's just like, oh, she's just old and she just remembers the old days when black people weren't around in desegregated settings. Um, and so uh, it, I liked that it didn't give that whole 
well, she's old. She, you just got to deal with it kind of mentality. Right. It was like, fuck it. You're old. That doesn't matter. You're going to learn a thing or two. Like dude, when, when she made her sit there and watch all of roots. Oh, I forgot about that too. And I still haven't seen roots. I need to. Oh dude. I love that season. I love that. I, know that, that I, I love that show across the board, but the way that they directly addressed racist paradigms right there that it was it was beautiful it was absolutely no, I, beautiful. Love, I love Raul Peck after exterminate all the brutes um I know that roots is like a very large book um yes. very large um so I'm like maybe I could do a three-hour movie because I do want to see it I didn't know how long the movie was but I assumed if it was as long as the book but it's so like the series four hours if I remember right it's been a long time since I watched it but it's okay. pretty long yeah I figured it would be but I'm like three or four hours is still not like a month right <laughs> one binge session bring a couple yeah. of doobies and some snacks <laughs> but yeah um, all right, so I'll i mean at least we can see that that hollywood has taken some steps in that manner um however there there even in that season there is still that factor of the main character is still a white woman played by Jessica Lang. <laughs> you know, but, but aren't all of them aren't all of them white? I mean besides them, the besides the the voodoo one? Yes, all of the witches in that coven are white except but for still, the still if you're watching that as a conservative, you're still putting yourself in that mindset of like black voodoo. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, yeah. Uh, James said eight hours for Roots. It could, be, I don't know. I would have to look it up. Matter of fact, I'm going to look that up because now I'm curious. Do we want to, we're almost to the end. Do we want to write that one down too? I've got, I've got BET, Danny Glover, and now I can put Roots down and we can talk about it at, after. Because yeah. I think there's only a page. Oh. There's a little bit, but we're most of the way through. Jesus fucking Christ. Hang on a moment. Okay. All right, I'm going again. While superficially appearing to present a portrait of racial social equality, mass media actually work to reinforce assumptions that black folks should always be cast in supporting roles in relation to white characters. That subordination is made to appear natural because most black characters are consistently portrayed as always a little less ethical and moral than whites, not given to rational, reasonable action. Page 115. It is not surprising that it is those black characters represented as didactic figures upholding the status quo who are portrayed as possessing positive characteristics. They are rational, ethical, moral peacemakers who help maintain law and order. Significantly, the neo-colonial messages about the nature of race that are brought to us by mass media do not just shape whites' minds and imaginations. They socialize black and other non-white minds as well. 
Understanding the power of representations, Black people have, in both the past and present, challenged how we are presented in mass media, especially if the images are perceived to be negative. But we have not sufficiently challenged representations of Blackness that are not obviously negative, even though they act to reinforce white supremacy. Concurrently, we do not challenge the representations of whites. We were not outside movie theaters protesting when the white male lead character in Paris Trout brutally slaughters a little black girl, even though I can think of no other image of a child being brutally slaughtered in a mainstream film, or when the lead character in A Perfect World, played by Kevin Costner, terrorizes a black family who gives him shelter. Even though he is a murderer and an escaped convict, his character is portrayed sympathetically, whereas the black male father is brutally tortured, presumably because he is an unloving, abusive parent. In A Perfect World, both the adult white male lead and the little white boy who stops him from killing the black man are shown to be ethically and morally superior to black people. Films that present cinematic narratives that seek to intervene in and challenge white supremacist assumption, whether they are made by black or white folks, tend to receive negative attention or none at all. John Sayles' film The Brother from Another Planet successfully presented a black male character in a lead role whose representation was oppositional, page 116. Rather than portraying a black male as a sidekick of a more powerful white male or as a brute and sex fiend, he offered us the image of a gentle, healing, angelic black male spirit. John Waters' film Hairspray was able to reach a larger audience. In this movie, white people choose to be anti-racist to critique white privilege. Jim Jarmusch's film Mystery Train is incredibly deconstructive of racist assumptions. When the movie begins, we witness a young Japanese couple arriving at the bus station in Memphis who begin to speak Japanese with a black man who superficially appears to be indigent. Racist stereotypes and class assumptions are challenged at this moment and throughout the film. White privilege and lack of understanding of the politics of racial difference are exposed, yet most viewers did not like this film and it did not receive much attention. Julie Dash's film, Daughters of the Dust, portrayed black folks in ways that were radically different from Hollywood conventions. Many white viewers and even some black viewers had difficulty relating to these images. Radical representations of race in television and movies demand that we be resisting viewers and break our attachment to conventional representations. These films and others like them demonstrate that film and mass media in general can challenge neo-colonial representations that re-inscribe racist, racist stereotypes and perpetuate white supremacy. If more attention were given these films, it would show that aware viewers long for mass media that act to challenge and change racist domination and white supremacy. Until all Americans demand that mass media no longer serve as the biggest propaganda machine for white supremacy, the socialization of everyone to subliminally absorb white supremacist attitudes and values will continue. Even though many white Americans do not overtly express racist thinking, it does not mean that their underlying belief structures have not been saturated with an ideology of difference that says white is always in every way superior to that which is black, page 117. Yet so far, no complex public discourse exists that explains the difference between that racism, which led whites to enjoy lynching and murdering black people, and that wherein a white person may have a black friend or lover, yet still believe black folks are intellectually and morally inferior to whites. Mainstream media's endorsement of The Bell Curve by Richard J. Herrnstein and Charles Murray 
reflects the American public's willingness to support racist doctrine that represents black people as genetically inferior. Anti-racist white male thinker and activist Edward Herman reminds us of the danger of such acceptance in his essay, The New Racist Onslaught, quote, built on black slavery with segregation and poverty helping reinforce stereotypes after 1865, racism has deep and persistent roots in this country. Today, racist Bob Grant has a radio audience of 680,000 in New York City, and racist Rush Limbaugh has a supportive audience of millions, extending to Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Reagan, with his repeated imagery of black welfare mothers exploiting the taxpayer, Bush with Willie Horton and the menace of quotas, and a slew of code words bandied about by politicians show that polarizing racist language and political strategies are acceptable and even integral parts of mainstream culture today, end quote. When black psyches are daily bombarded by mass media representations that encourage us to see white people as more caring, intelligent, liberal, etc., it makes sense that many of us begin to internalize racist thinking. Page 118. Without an organized resistance movement that focuses on the role of mass media in the perpetuation and maintenance of white supremacy, nothing will change. Boycotts remain one of the most effective ways to call attention to this issue. Picketing outside theaters, turning off the television set, writing letters of protest are all low-risk, small acts that can become major interventions. Mass media are neither neutral nor innocent when it comes to spreading the message of white supremacy. It is not far-fetched for us to assume that many more white Americans would be anti-racist if they were not socialized daily to embrace racist assumptions. Mass media to divest of white supremacy should be the starting point of a renewed movement for racial justice. That's the thing, you know, in, in the last 30 or so years, we, we have seen um, some changes in growth there where now they're even on, you know, channels that used to be predominantly white. There are now, you know, countless shows that the leading roles are black people and not in subservient positions. Um, so at least there's been some change there. And I kind of wonder, um, cause I mean, I, I was still a kid when this book came out. So, you know, I, I wonder if, if that might have been part of that, of people protesting via boycotting certain things might have had an effect. Um, it, at least it is changing, even though it is so far. I, I think that sort of ties in with the beginning of, or I guess the end of 116. Um, hey, but new uh, information. So uh, Jesus fucking Christ, is the safe word. <laughs> but um, so it says until all Americans demand that mass media no longer serve as the biggest propaganda machine for white supremacy, the socialization of everyone to subliminally absorb white supremacist attitudes and values will continue. I, I get where she's going with this, but like you said, everything has evolved um, into something different now with the way that we're portraying people in media and racism media and women. Um, and I think that until we change the way that we educate people, that we will never see that kind of um, opposition to that kind of subliminal messaging. 
Um, right. That's the reason that it's subliminal. That's the reason that most people don't realize how big of a problem um, sexism and white supremacy are in the United States. And the only reason that I was ever aware of it is because I was directly exposed to the ones that are fueling um, this movement. Um, and so it's like, I, I get where she's going with it and I don't disagree with her. I just think that that's going to take steps before that ever even gets there. Right. Because I mean, if you don't know something, then it's hard to um, become made aware of it most of the time, I would say. Right. Especially when they're doing this shit so subtly, so underhandedly, where it is subliminal of them just ingraining these fucking colorist ideals into what they're teaching. Um, and not just on TV, but in schools. I mean, I how are there not more kids going, wait a fucking minute, we just talked about slavery ending and then talked about the civil rights movement and if racism really ended then why is there people being blasted with hoses here in this picture from the civil rights movement it was like hello <laughs> you know um but i think a lot of it goes into that false idea of american exceptionalism once again where you know those who are making these types of movies and tv shows those who are you know basically taking the reins when it comes to our education system and what even gets allowed to be taught in the classroom and stuff like that. They, they really want to pretend like, see, everything's okay. Now this is a non-issue. And it's like, no, it's still a fucking issue when we still see systemic racism harming people of color every fucking where. Yeah. It's perpetuating it and it's a fucking problem. Um, Um, I don't see anything coming up about BET. There is a section on the BET website about her. Bell Hooks calls Beyonce a terrorist. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to read that later. Um, <laughs> Wait a minute, what? <laughs> That's good. Okay. Um. <laughs> hey, Belle pulled no fucking punches ever. You know, she, she was not about fucking putting on kid gloves for adult conversations. This was May 7th, 2014. Yeah. I'm curious. Will you send me the link for that too? Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll send it to your personal okay. uh, Facebook one. And if you want to post it here for anybody else, uh, just to let everybody know, I have not read this, so I do not endorse, <laughs> but, I do, but I probably do endorse it. Um, so <laughs> it's a high likelihood. Given how many things we see eye to eye, on with bell hooks. <laughs> Fuck. I'm like, what did she have to say about Rihanna <laughs> being a billionaire? Right. <laughs> like at minimum, class trader. 
Because that, that's the thing. Kind of makes me really wonder about people who have become excessively financially successful. And like if I was in their shoes, the majority of that income would be going to help other people who are not as well off, not to buy $3,000 fucking shoes or any other stupid yeah, shit. Like I mean, she's, she's living the life. Yeah. Which shows that uh, money buys freedom. Goodness. In some cases, not always, but that's, that's part of the problem of that misconception being ingrained of like, you know, people think, well, well, wait, I'm successful. So why am I still being treated with racism? And it's like, um, because no matter how much green you have, that's not going to stop a racist from still completely judging you by your appearance instead of by who you are and what you do and how you operate. And that's a fucking problem. Um, Just realized, man, this is a short episode. Yeah. No, I like that because if there are people talking, then that's fine. Um, Mostly James. It seems like in the chat section. (laughs) Um... I'm looking up at, I'm trying to find Danny Glover, um, Malcolm X. Mm. Hi, puppy. My goodness, Sarah is looking at me like I just committed the worst act ever by moving my leg and disturbing her nap. How dare you move your leg? I was leaning on that. Like, I know, and it hurts. <laughs> right. Yeah, you're a good doggo. You sweet puppy. You can go back to sleep. Activism. You checking to see if if Danny was involved in civil rights? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that he was. I just don't know if he met Malcolm X or not. Um, (laughs) James, he said, scale the wall, but don't put your muddy boots on Nancy's million dollar desk, poor people. Goodness, <laughs> that. <laughs> um, it says, while attending San Francisco State University, Glover was a member of the Black Students Union, which along with Third World Liberation Front and the American Federation of Teachers, collaborated in a five-month student-led strike to establish a Department of Black Studies. The strike was the longest student walkout in U.S. history. Nice. It helped create not only the first department of black studies, but also the first school of ethnic studies in the United States. Fuck yes. That's fucking beautiful. Mm. That's inspirational, motivational shit. Yeah, and it looks like he graduated from there. Uh... 
I don't know when he graduated from there. But that must have been early 60s. So, yeah, he was right on. I guess so. Yeah, because he's about the same age as my folks. Well, and Malcolm died in 65? Yeah. So I think Glover was 19. Sounds about right. Yeah. Um, and then Roots. What were we looking at with Roots? Oh, I already looked it up to see how long it was. It's eight episodes and they're 95 minutes each. So, 12 hours-ish altogether. Oh, but it's a series, so it's not. Yeah, like... mini-series. Okay. Yeah. Okay, sweet. Yeah. Um, I'm going to check that out. Then. Yeah, I just, for some reason, I was thinking it was like four hours worth of either two segments or four segments. And I, my memory is like Swiss cheese, so I'm glad I looked that up. Um. Hi, Natalie. Hi. I don't know. I don't really have anything else to add. <laughs> We're like under an hour right now, and I don't have anything else to say. Right. This was a relatively short essay. And I mean, there's not a whole lot we can say to elaborate on what Belle said because she, per the usual, hit so many. Yeah, nails usually on I'm just like, I'm like, I have a story to validate what she said, but you're just like, I mean, mostly I don't. Unless no. she starts talking about Karl Marx again, I don't think we're going to have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> right. Then it's like, wait a minute, is there some research we need to do here and see what's up? But um, yeah, I mean, um, as far as what she addressed in this essay, we've, we've seen this play out on TV our entire lives. Um, and while we have watched some things shift and change, it's still absolutely not where it really fully needs to be um, because there is still um, negative and false racial paradigms being portrayed in some movies and television. Um, but at least there are now people who are actually coming to the literal fucking stage or the screen with an oppositional viewpoint of like, no, here's what reality really is. And on that note, that reminds me of a BET movie called Karen. Watch it. Watch it. It's fucking very twisty. But also hits so many fucking realistic things on the head with the way this neighbor bitch who is named Karen treats a successful black couple that moves in next door to her buys a house in this like you know somewhat bougie suburb neighborhood um in the shit that she does oh my god it'll make everybody want to slap the taste out of her mouth um fucking good movie some of it was a bit cheesy but um, I'm not sure, and I know you've brought that one up to me before. It's like a horror, but it's like 1950s, a black family moves into a white 50s neighborhood. Um, yeah. And it's fucked, but it's really good. Um, 
it's really psychological thriller as well as like i mean it can get gory and worse than that but like um psychological in dealing with race is really good um i i feel the same way about that movie karen of like a lot of it is seriously traumatizing fucking shit that happens in there so the fact that the the people who produced this movie were able to also find moments to bring some twisted humor in and fucking make light of like what the fuck is wrong with people who act like this um it was it was great but you know as far as on the being terrorized by a fucking karen tip um if it hadn't had those comedic notes in there too it would have been a straight horror film yeah uh i guess so i might like yours better just because uh them put me on edge the whole time and it was like but that's probably exactly what they were going for yeah no i mean no i know it was but it it was like tense (laughs) yeah um yeah um trying to remember if there's anything else we had noted to discuss again swiss cheese memory i don't know but i like her analysis in this essay literally pointing out like part of this problem is you being completely ingrained with this just by what you're watching on the screen. Yeah. It, no, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's why I pick and choose the things that I watch now, too, because we have a lot more control over that, I think, now than we used to when she wrote this. Um, and so I think it's important that um, that we always just criticize what it is that we're watching while we're watching it, which is usually why I pick certain things that I do, because they don't really have anything to do with that. Um or they are very good at showing um, equal representation and specifically not just representation, but representations of authority, equal representations of authority, equal representations of interaction, um, as well as interracial relationships and things like that. Um, Right. That's one thing where I can point out that at least um, that, paradigm has shifted as far as what they're showing in movies and TV. It's no longer like how she was describing of those movies in the nineties of like, Oh, anytime there's a connection, it becomes detrimental because that's not fucking reality. That should have never been the idea being portrayed there. Um, so I'm glad at least that has come some leaps. In what do you think about that as um, not necessarily right, but as a, symptoms symptom of just evolving i mean there was it was already like at the time then it was still something that you couldn't do in a certain manner and so it was necessary for those bad takes and bad media to get to now i mean yeah that's a a possibility of those being part of deconstructing that you know um because it just seems like media is further behind than actual real life and so they must have been like this is the only way we can portray this and so this is the way that we're going to portray it obviously not with that one where they talked about brutally beating that beating that little girl to death in whatever movie the paris trout or something like that um 
but I mean, otherwise, like just showing interracial relationships, um, maybe it it had to be bad before it could get to like, okay, we've seen this before, so now we've got to show them this. Um, it just in hindsight is kind of disappointing to see that there wasn't a whole lot changed between that and what was being presented decades earlier and who's coming to dinner, you know? That that same paradigm was still being displayed in the nineties. Um and so like the, the changes that have happened in the last 30 years are at least leaps and bounds compared to that. And I'm not even sure what year uh who's coming to dinner came out, but it was a black and white film uh originally. So if I remember right, again Swiss cheese memory. But um, you know, for for that paradigm to have held for so long. It's like, what the fuck? This is not representative of reality either. Um, not fully, like, do these things show how a lot of racist white families reacted to one of their family members being an interracial relationship? Sure. Um, but does that mean that that relationship is just doomed because it's interracial? No, sometimes it means that you take a healthy step for yourself and cut out the fucking family members who are treating you like shit for that. Well, and I hate that too, because I've had to deal with that also. Um, and sometimes even when you, I mean, that wasn't why we broke up. It wasn't, I mean, it, it was because he was an apathetic person. And I was, at the time, more um, aware of abuse um, in my local community. Um, and he just really never took any type of stand on it. I mean, he would take that stand with a mutual friend of ours, but he wasn't with her. And so it was just kind of like, you'll defend her. And she agrees with me on this. Um, but you'll defend her, but you won't defend me. Um, but like it's because he's a musician and sometimes you just get caught up too much in that kind of scene. But I did have problems with my parents being racist about it. And I would hear things from my sister. They would, they would run around uh, while my sister was there and I wasn't because they live 150 miles away from me. Um, and they would just be going, Hector! Hector! And like, Oh God. Awful. And I, he, and I told him about it. I was like, I didn't want to tell him about it, but I told him, he was like, well, I mean, if they were even trying to be accurate, they would stop pronouncing the H. <laughs> I was like, Sorry. you're the funniest <laughs> motherfucker. <I was> like, <laughs> <laughs> so he was like, he was really, he had a good sense of humor about that kind of stuff, even though you shouldn't have to have a good sense of humor about that. Um, but but that's just how like, little of a fuck he cared about their opinion. It did feel too. really uncomfortable to have to be in that kind of relationship and feel like my family just did not want him to be there. And I mean, it's not the sole reason, but I mean, it is hard to deal with that, even if you have had to end a relationship that way. Like, I know that wasn't why our relationship ended, but also it was a stressor that was like very irritating to me. And it was because, like I said, they're always very subtle and act like they don't like that's not what they really mean or it was just a joke right and it's like no jokes are actually funny and that's not funny um no he says other things uh like her husband um says other things too sometimes to me he says things about which this is not the one that i grew up with um 
but he says things like dark meat and shit like that. And it's just like, he thinks that it's funny. And it's just like, I don't even want to be around any of you. Just look at him and be like, we're all pink on the inside, you pink ass motherfucker. <laughs> want me to cut you and show you? He's very pink too. Um <laughs> <laughs> Fine. But yeah, uh, I'm good. Oh. You're good. I want to go bitch to our friends about our inside experience. Sounds like a plan. Uh, I think I'm going to make some food and then I'll join you in there shortly. Um, I agree. He said races being 150 miles away is a good thing. (laughs) Totally. Definitely. Yep. (laughs) I've removed myself from the situation. That way, if I ever do have to see them, it's in short dresses. Mm -hmm. And then moving on. Like, nope. Now you're just somebody that I used to know. (laughs) fuck uh you know sometimes that's all you can do for your own better well-being is just cut the toxic ass motherfuckers out you done with that we did that today didn't we we did once again and now my brain is playing oops i did it again and i'm like please no stop just stop (laughs) it has a a soundtrack for everything but speaking of music i'm gonna grab some tunes here for y'all to listen to on the way out thank you for joining us tonight oh i forgot to put the thing up first there we go uh later (laughs) y'all have a good night we will be back on wednesday with another segment of this book um, and I'm not sure yet if we're going to be doing the current events. I think we'll do that on Thursday. I'm not sure yet what Rob's schedule is, if he'll be on that one for us or not, but we're also going to have a live interview happening this week with, uh, the new African Black Panther Party chairman, Sharad Zulu, and we'll be discussing the, uh, the Hassan Shakur Community Center that has been built in Newark, New Jersey, uh, in collaboration with the United Panther Movement and the Second Rainbow Coalition. Um, So keep your eyes open for that. I'll let you know what day that's going to be on soon here. So keep your eyes on our page. Thank you all. Mad love. Have a good night. Bye. Yeah.